we usually like to do the things on our own instead of letting God take the wheel. Today, John Marino explains to us how sometimes instead of doing the good thing, we should be doing the God thing. Let's listen in as John Marino brings us today's message. Well, hi again, everybody. I get a, um, an email every couple of days, two, three times a week, and it's a thing called Mikey's Funnies, and it's actually pretty good. Um, so there was this young boy in church with his parents, and when the pastor was talking about Lot's wife, you know, he was explaining how when uh, they left Sodom and Gomorrah, God told her, don't turn around, you know, don't look back. And the pastor said, well, she turned around and she looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. And there was this little kid with his parents in the back of the church. And all you could hear was him saying, yeah, my mother turned around once while she was driving. She turned into a telephone pole. (laughs) It's funny, but think about that. How many times have we turned around? How many times should I be a pillar of salt? Because God said to go this way, and I just, you know, turned around and went that way. That just kind of caught my attention. God's grace is a great thing. Um, I knew a pastor who was very young, probably in his early 20s, and he was a musician. And he told a story about how every day his father would come up to him, and he would say, so what has God been telling you lately? He would ask him that question every single day. Uh, That just amazed me. Um, My question is, have you seen God lately? Have you seen God? Have you seen God working, doing something? I saw him in action this past couple of weeks like I have never seen before or for a long time. I'm going to give you some examples. I wish I could get into the whole story, but I really can't. But God literally sent a letter. addressed a letter, I don't know how it happened, to a completely different address so that the person at that address would get it, open the letter, and then call me and Loretta. And on top of that, it it wasn't even, that wasn't even the amazing part, although it just blows me away because the letters were done by computer by somebody completely having nothing to do with anything going on in any of our lives at the moment. So it was really weird. But on top of that, the timing was so that if she had not called us, she wouldn't have been able to do what she needed to do. I mean, there was like literally a 15-minute window. And that's how, that's, it was amazing just to watch God work. Uh, it, it, It blows me away. Um, ah, God's timing right down to the minute. Another incident involved God's moving and doing after Loretta and I tried to do it ourselves. Uh, and when we got to the point to where we were completely and totally frustrated, especially me, I was like, I give up. I can't do it. God, you do it. Within a day, everything was done and taken care of with no help from us whatsoever. Uh, 
I mean, we tend to do that a lot. We tend to want to make things happen for God. Um, I mean, I believe, I believe that God will make things happen right in front of us. And we only have to be ready to respond to any given situation, either the way he has already taught us or the way he tells us at that moment. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Combination of two old phrases, you know, the old phrase of letting go and letting God. And then being ready to respond the way God wants us to respond. Um, for those of you who, who, who know or may have met her, uh, Jean Caceres Gonzalez, she was the founder of his house, Children's Home. And we've worked with them a lot for a lot of years uh, we used to teach their kids in Sunday school. Chris, you used to teach their kids in Sunday school. That's right. Um, she once said something that I've never forgotten and I never will. Uh, she always strived to do the God thing and not the good thing. That phrase has been burned into my soul. Uh, the God thing, not the good thing. Jesus shows us the principle several times. Uh, Lazarus, he was a close friend of Jesus. And he was sick. But Jesus did not get up and go right away to go see him. He waited. That would have been the good thing to do. I mean, you know, somebody calls you and tells you that you're, they're sick. What do you want to do? You want to go right away and help them. Jesus didn't do that. In the Gospel of John, in John eleven five and 6, it says, So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. I mean, that's... Uh, we would think that the good thing would be or to go and you know, do whatever we can for the person that needs us. A couple of verses later, in verses 14 and 15, it says, So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes... I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. In this case, Jesus actually gives them the reason why the God thing was more important than the good thing. It was to their benefit. There are several examples of this happening throughout the entire Bible. The ultimate example is obviously Jesus dying on the cross. In the garden before he was, before he was arrested, Jesus said, God, if, you know, I could not have to do this. That would be a really good thing. Uh, but God had other plans. I mean, even earlier, remember when Peter said to him, uh, when they were walking one day, and Jesus, well, I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's. And in the garden, Jesus chose to do the God thing. This is not in my notes, but I thought of it before. 
I've actually thought about it a lot the past couple of weeks. The woman in Kentucky with the, uh, with the gay marriage thing. She was in charge of the whole office. She doesn't want her name. And because she was elected and she's in charge, her name goes on the bottom of every license. I understand her position. I, I agree with her position of not being wanting to actually endorse gay marriage, and she was actually doing it. I mean, you know. But her reaction, did she do the good thing or the God thing? My own personal belief and opinion is that she did what everybody perceived as the good thing. I personally think the God thing would have been to very quietly resign and tell them why you're resigning and trust God to take care of your future. But it's easy for me to criticize because I'm not there. But, but that's, I think that's a modern-day example because probably half the Christians in this country are backing this woman's position because they thought that she did the good thing. Enough politics. I don't like politics. But when we're sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we can usually tell the difference between the good thing and the God thing. We know. It doesn't, I mean, occasionally God has to hit me up the side of the head with a two-by-four. But I usually know what the good thing to do and what God really wants me to do. I don't always choose to do it, I'm sorry to say. I mean, sometimes the, the, the good or the God thing goes against logic. Okay, even in simple ways. You only got five bucks in your pocket. Somebody asks you for money. The good thing would be to give the person a dollar. God thing might be to give them all five. Give them all your money. Um, once we recognize and do the God thing, the other part becomes much harder. That's the letting go and letting God do his thing part. Um, but I want to give you what I believe is pretty sound biblical backing for just letting things happen and watching what God does. Like I said earlier, I really believe that God will and does make things happen right in front of us a lot. And all we have to do is respond the way the Bible has taught us to or respond how you know, he shows us in that moment. I'm going to jump between Romans, Ephesians, and then Esther. Romans 8, 28 to 31. Uh, and this is out of the New Living Translation. And we know that God causes everything. And I put that word in bold, and I increased the type size, because I want to emphasize everything. What does everything mean? It means everything. It includes all of it. it. Causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he caused them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing with himself, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Let that one sink in. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Say it. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? In the message, it puts it like this. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? The game is fixed. We can't lose. There's no way. If you don't get anything else tonight, walk out of here remembering that. Repeat it to yourself all week. If God is for me, who can be against me? Now I'm going to jump to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. In the Amplified Version, that part of the, that part of the verse says, uh, For we are God's own handiwork, his workmanship, recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew, that we may do those good works which God predestined, planned beforehand for us, taking paths which he prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us to live. That tells me that God drops things in front of us all the time. He puts them there. He's, he's planned them before we were even born. God planned, on sending us, God planned on sending a letter to the wrong address so that we could get that phone call. I mean, and then the woman turned around and accomplished exactly what God needed her to do. She responded to the Holy Spirit. And exactly what God planned before I was even born was all done. When Loretta and I let go and let God, he was able to do exactly what he planned long before. You know, it, it, it's been planned since the foundation of the world. I mean, that just blows me away. We were a part of it. And this time, after the two by four had crossed the head, we responded the way we were supposed to. Uh, after we stopped trying to do it ourselves. I find it unbelievably amazing when I can see God moving like that. Because when that happens, I know that I know that I know that I know that that's exactly what's supposed to happen and that God is there taking care of everything. I mean, that's... When we see God move, when we see God work, it builds up our faith. We see it in a little thing, then the next thing might be a little bigger. And then the thing after that might be a little bigger. And eventually, the goal is for us to walk around like Jesus. I don't think it's going to happen before we die, but I think we can come pretty darn close to where the rest of the world notices. One of the best illustrations of watching God work in the entire Bible is in the book of Esther. And the funny thing about the book of Esther, God's not even mentioned. But it's a book about how God works behind the scenes, in front of the scenes. Esther chapter 2. Verses 5 to 7. There was a certain Jew in the capital of... 
See, I clicked on the little thing that helped me pronounce all these words today, except I didn't click on this one. Shushan, S-H-U-S-H-A-N, say it however you want, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives taken away with Jeremiah, or when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. He had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The maiden was beautiful and lovely, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, Mordecai's great-grandfather was carried away from Israel when the Babylonians came and just, like, tore the place up. Um, They were taken away from the land of promise, so he was born in exile. Now, him and his whole entire family could have been bitter about that. They could have, you know, you know, woe is me. Uh, we're captives and we're stuck here. Nowhere do you see that anywhere. Esther could have been bitter about her, her parents dying. And Mordecai could have been bitter about being stuck raising his cousin. Nowhere, anywhere in the book of Esther do you see anything like that. It, 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 it's amazing. Um, those are kind of like why me moments. You know, you see people, and I'm sure I've done it myself, where why me? Why did this happen to me? You know, that's not a bad question. If you don't escalate into that little self-pity party. Because why me is actually what we should probably be asking God all the time. You know, God, why me? Okay, show me. So the story of Esther goes like this. If, if, you're not, if you've never read the book of Esther, read it. Sit down. It'll probably take you about a half hour. Read it from beginning to end. So you get the whole story. It is actually really cool. Um, and this is the, the abbreviated John translation. Uh, sometime between 483 and 471 B.C., uh, Xerxes, the great king, ruled Babylon. And one day during the feast, he summoned his wife Vashti and said, come on down to the court. I want to show you off to all the people that are at the party. Um, and this is actually really funny when you read it. She said no. She didn't go. And that was, I mean, the king summoning, summoning you and you're not going. I mean, they just like kind of flipped out and you got to read that in there because all of his advisors start talking about how, well, you know, when word gets out that your wife didn't listen to you, none of the other wives anywhere in the kingdom are going to listen to their husbands anymore. And there's going to be like this massive revolt because the women are going to be out of control. And I'm not saying anything else. Uh, (laughs) But they decided he's going to basically divorce her. He banished her, and that was it. But then he needed, uh, he needed a replacement. You know, he needed a replacement wife. You know, people with money and power and whatnot, they always got to have Donald Trump, three, four of them. Come on. Uh, all right, I want to read Esther chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. 
He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, especially chosen from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Well, right off the bat, God gives Esther tremendous favor. I mean, the guy in charge of the, ham, of the harem is like, okay, this is, this is the girl. So when finally Esther's taken to the king, he loves her. He loves this woman. He's not going to call anybody else. That's it. Contest is over. All you guys can just wait. And so she becomes basically his wife. In the meantime, Mordecai gets, I guess, sort of a court position so he can kind of hang out now, and he sees what's going on. One night he discovers that there's this plot against the king, and he tells, he tells the, the people in the court about it, and they foil the plot, and they write this all down in, their, in, the, in the, the minutes. They, they kept chronicles of everything, and this is all written down in there. Okay, and he stops this plot, and all's good. Now, on another front, this, is, this would actually make such a good movie because it's got everything. Um, you got this guy, Haman, who's the king's second in command, and he doesn't like Mordecai. And basically, the reason he doesn't like Mordecai is because every time he goes in and out of the, out of the palace, Everybody in the courtyard kind of bows down and, you know, gives him his due and salutes and all that other good stuff. Mordecai doesn't. He's not going to bow down to anybody but God. And this drives this guy, Haman, crazy. So he starts plotting against the Jews and against specifically against Mordecai. So Mordecai asks for Esther's help. And she was nervous about it because if you go to the king without being summoned... Uh, and if he doesn't like it, you're done. You're out of there, off with your head, and all that other good stuff. So now we're all the way up to Esther 4, uh, chapter, thir- or, yeah, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to return this answer to Esther. Do not flatter yourself that you shall escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance shall arise for the Jews from elsewhere. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this and for this very occasion. This is a verse I've repeated to myself a lot. Uh, It's especially powerful when you read it in light of what we read in Ephesians. All the way back on verse 10, I guess that was Ephesians 2. Um, For we are God's own handiwork, his workmanship recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew that we may do the good works which God predestined, planned beforehand. For us, taking paths which he prepared ahead of time, that we should walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us to live. Who knows if you're not sitting here tonight because this is exactly where God wants you to be. Who knows that you're not at the job that you have because that's exactly where God wants you to be. He's got these works that he's prearranged. 
And all we have to do is look for him working and respond to that situation. Esther was getting to ready to walk in the path that God prepared for her beforehand. Uh, we can see how he set everything up, and it continues to get better and better and better. While all this is going on, and Haman's doing all of this plotting against Mordecai and the Jews, the king can't sleep one night and goes and he's reading through all his the, the books, the chronicles, and he's just, you know, reading so he falls asleep. Well, he comes across the story of about how Mordecai foiled that plot earlier. And he asks them, he said, hey, has anybody, anything ever been done for this guy? This guy saved my life. And they said, no. So next day, he's waiting for Haman, and Haman comes to work. And the king asks him, what would you do for somebody that I want to honor? I'm the king, and the king wants to honor this person, and what would you do for them? Haman is so self-centered and such a narcissist that he thinks the king's talking about him. And he said, well, hey, who's the king going to want to honor more than me? So he says, I would take the royal robe, and I would put it on them, and I would put them on a horse, and then I'd parade that horse through the streets, and I would tell everybody, this is what the king does to people he wants to honor. And the king says, wow, that's really cool. Go do it right now for Mordecai. I mean, that's like, yeah, you know, that's, that's why I think this would make such a good movie. <laughs> it would be really cool to see that. So, I mean, this really, you know, gets Mordecai, you know, going. And he builds a gallows ready for, you know, to hang Mordecai, or Haman builds a gallows to hang Mordecai on. In the meantime, and I'm, I'm really abbreviating this whole thing a lot, but Esther tells the king she's Jewish and saves her people. And uh, Haman ends up being hung on his own gallows. And I really want to say, uh, that's gallows humor from God, but, you know. Uh, and, and Mordecai is, like, given a, a place of honor in the palace, and he becomes the king's right-hand man, and it was all set up beforehand. God is not mentioned anywhere in there, but you can see his hand at work every step. I mean, I, and, and when I say that the past two to three weeks, we have seen God's hand move. I mean, like I have not seen in ages. I mean, it was, you could, there's no way you could deny it. There's no way you could deny it. People popping up that we've never met. And one of the first things they say to us is, is quoting scripture. Who are you? you know, do you have wings under that jacket or something that we don't know about? And the people are saved. Esther saves her people by just responding the way she was taught that God would want her to respond. You know, Romans 8. And we know God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And then, 30, verse 31, what, what, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Think about all of this stuff and whatever's going on in your life right now. And there may be nothing going on. 
You may be having a very dull and boring life right now. God bless you. Enjoy it. <laughs> because it's not going to last. Or God may put something in front of you that has nothing to do with you. But you're going to know that you need to respond a certain way. And when we know these things, when we know that nobody can stand against us once we're doing God's thing, it's going to build up our faith. For we know we are God's own handiwork. You know, he predestined us. And predestined doesn't mean for those who have a problem with that word, it doesn't mean that you can't say no. Because even even uh, Mordecai told Esther, if you don't do it, somebody else will do it. But God wanted Esther to do it first. I mean, are you looking for God working and acting in your life? Actively looking. Are you responding the way the Holy Spirit leads? Are you doing the good thing or the God thing? I want to, I'm going to leave you with two very important things. The first one I already said, uh, if God is for you, who can ever be against you? But everything works together in your life for your good. If you know God, then by now you should know that. And we need to consciously act on that more. And for whatever reason, circumstances were arranged so that you're here tonight hearing this. And I'm going to be that bold. If you're sitting in this room, you were meant to hear this sermon. I was meant to hear this sermon. And if you don't know, if you're sitting in this room and you don't know Christ, then that's even a bigger reason why you're supposed to be here. Because God's got something for each of us to do. We just need to be open to doing it. I mean, think about it. This church, and Terry talks about it a lot. This church has been through a lot. This church has been, has been you know, small, big, medium, has had how many places have we been in in the past year? I mean, but we're all still here for a reason. There is something that each one of you in this room needs to do that I can't do for you, that Terry can't do for you, that uh, Debbie can't do for you, George can't do for you, Chris can't do what I have to do for me, Loretta can't even do what I have to do for me. I wish sometimes she could. I wish sometimes I could pawn off half the stuff I have to do on other people, but I can't. second thing I want you to leave with is like Esther, God has planned good works for you. He's arranged your life. Look for his leading. Look for his signs. Um, and then sit back and watch God work. When I was telling Loretta today about kind of what I was talking about, not everything. But her, her, the first verse that popped into her head was, be still and know that I am God. We learn that the hard way. 
these past couple of weeks to just stop doing everything. Stop trying to please God. Because when you try to please God, you usually can't. But when you allow God, this is weird, when you allow God to please himself through you, it works out really well. Because then you do things his way and not your way. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that everything that happens in our life, you're going to somehow make it work out for our good. Even the bad things that happen, even the bad things that we cause to happen, somehow you're going to work that out for our good. Because we know you and we love you. Father, I just pray for every person in the room that you would give them eyes to see, eyes to see you working in their lives, that you would give them eyes to see the path that you put them on, that you would show them the good works, and once you show them that you would give them the courage, the wisdom to walk in those good works to do things exactly the way you want them to do it. I pray that for everyone in this room. I pray that for me. God, I thank you for everyone here. I pray that you would just continue to mind us. We'll give you the glory because when you do the things that we can't we have to glorify you because it's plain to see that you're the one